Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there. This episode contains just the tiniest bit of salty language. Okay, here's the show. Kareem Shaheen is a journalist, lives in Montreal, but he carries around in his pocket a sort of window to a world thousands of miles away, Syria. You know, if you spend so many years covering the conflict, um, uh, the the information kind of comes to you. Hmm. Eventually, it's hard to um, it's hard to sort of disconnect yourself from what's going on. This window, it's his phone. It's, it's somewhat upsetting, actually, because. Um, you scroll through the, your phone and, and you're looking through pictures of, uh, you know, you and your wife or you and your kid and, or you and your cats. And the, in between, there are pictures of, you know, dead children. Back when he was reporting in Syria, which he did for five years, Kareem's phone was his Swiss army knife. There was an app to warn him of incoming warplanes. And encrypted messaging meant he could get voice memos right from the front line. You know, towards the end of these sieges, you get messages from uh, doctors and, and activists and people you've been in contact with on the ground telling you, you know, that they might not be able to speak to you again because they might um, they might die in the next few hours. Now that Kareem is so far away, having his phone buzzing around in his pocket, it's like a constant retort to the world around him. You know, it, it always felt like what was unfolding in terms of Western politics was this just sort of surreal thing. And and you'd sit there and ask yourself, like, really, is this what everybody's concerned about? Is this what everybody's talking about? This December, Kareem's phone got louder, more insistent. It was the latest carnage in the Assad regime's intensified offensive against Syria's last rebel-held stronghold. Back in Syria, he could see people getting ready for a brutal assault. Bashar al-Assad was about to launch what was meant to be a final campaign against the biggest province that's remained out of his reach, Idlib. In northwestern Syria's Idlib province, the latest target was this schoolhouse. But in the physical world around him, Kareem saw people getting ready for Christmas, saw Donald Trump about to be impeached. The, the, the whole impeachment stuff was, was kind of comic relief uh, <laughs> for me. I would often read a lot in American media outlets about sort of, you know, the end of democracy and, and Trump's authoritarian tendencies and, um, and all these issues. And I was, was thinking to myself, like, you're looking in the wrong place for the end of the international order. Today on the show, Kareem is going to let us into the world he sees. There's a ceasefire in Idlib, for now. But the people who live there are still looking to flee. The question isn't just, where will they go? It's whether the rest of the world will care. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us.
This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There's a video that started going around Twitter back in February as Idlib became the focus of a renewed Syrian assault. It shows a dad and his toddler daughter. The little girl had gotten scared hearing bombs fall. <laughs> so her father taught her to make the bombing into a game, to laugh as the explosions detonated. This video feels at once sweet and completely nihilistic. And if you listen to Kareem talk for a little bit, you can understand where that comes from. I don't really have faith in the idea that the universe has a moral arc that leads towards justice and, and that leads towards, uh, you know, accountability. Uh, I, I don't think it does anymore. Kareem was one of the few Western journalists to report from inside Idlib, the last rebel-held province that President Bashar al-Assad has failed to capture. Kareem watched over the last nine years of civil war as this province's population swelled. That's because as the Assad regime, working with Russia, took back more and more of this country, Idlib became a refuge of last resort for people who'd fled their homes again and again. Obviously, the, the figures pre-war are, are unclear, but there's, there's three million civilians now. Uh, and, you know, a million of them have been displaced just from the beginning of December until now. So that's a million people who, you know, have had to pick up their lives and flee um, and, uh, you know, live uh, usually in uh, these uh, flimsy tents, if they have any tents at all, in sub-zero temperatures uh, near the Turkish border. They have no shelter at all. Some of these, um, you know, they call them IDP, internally displaced peoples. Some of these IDP camps have been bombed um, in the course of the war as well. And uh, they're sitting there without any shelter. For Kareem, Idlib is a place he clearly saw both the brutality of the Syrian regime and the beauty of this country's terrain. In 2017, Kareem was living just over the border in Turkey when he heard reports of a chemical attack in Syria. He saw these images of children foaming at the mouth. But he knew he couldn't report what had taken place without traveling into the war zone himself. So when you arrived in Idlib, what did you see? So Idlib, is, as a province, is one of the most beautiful countrysides that I've ever laid eyes on to. There's a verdant green to, uh, you know, all the countryside. Uh, the, the earth is this cinnamon color. 
Um, there are cherry trees and almond trees and olive groves um, along the roads. It sounds really beautiful. It is. It is. It's the kind of place you'd uh, you'd imagine if you know we're in an alternate universe that people would be going there for retreats to get away from it all. What are the tells that something's not right there, though? Um, you know, occasional abandoned tanks, um, you know, uh, along the road. And once you actually get into some of the towns and cities, um, it's very hard to get through a street where there isn't a building that's destroyed or, or pockmarked or, you know, there's uh, there's always some smoke rising in the distance, um, you know, from, from whatever uh, ongoing battle or shelling or bombing um, had happened. You know, wherever there is civilization, it's um, it's devastated. While you were there, you met this young father of twins who was at their funeral. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah. Uh, so so his name is Abdel Hamid al-Yusuf, and um, his picture had gone viral the, the night of the attack while I was waiting to cross the border. Um, it was a picture of him holding his two infant sons. Uh, sorry, his, uh, his daughter and son uh, were still infants. He was preparing to uh, to bury them because they had suffocated to death. Um, I later found out that uh, that his wife had also died, uh, along with uh, a total of about 18 to 20 members of his family. This was after the chemical attack. That's right. They, they all uh, they all perished in the chemical attack. His wife and his two kids apparently had gone into um, uh, the basement because they had, they had thought that it was a conventional bombing. But the gas seeped in, and uh, while he was helping ferry people to the nearby hospital, they, they had suffocated to death. Um, when, I, when I went in, uh, one of the locals uh, there asked if I wanted to meet him, and, uh, and I immediately said yes. And so I went to, uh, to visit him, at, uh, and there was a memorial service that was being held for, uh, for his family members. And I sat next to him, and uh, I didn't conduct an interview in the traditional sense. He was completely out of it. You know, he was sort of like drifting in and out of consciousness, uh, sort of in this dream state where he was in shock and uh, didn't really know what was going on around him. Um, I do remember, though, I was sitting next to him, and, and there was um, there was another person who was sitting on the on the other side, and he was telling him this this religious parable that we have in Islam. So in in, uh, in Islam, uh, there's this concept that, um, you know, on Judgment Day, everybody has to cross this bridge uh, called Al-Sirat. And um, uh, if you manage to cross it, you enter into paradise. And if you stumble and you fall, you're, you fall into hell, according to the story. But there's, there's a story about if your children die at a really young age, and you endure that loss with, with humility and patience and, uh, and forbearance, then God is going to reward you on Judgment Day by resurrecting your children as, uh, as these winged um, angels, and they will fly you across the bridge so you'll never stumble and fall. Uh, so you're essentially guaranteed to go into paradise if you endure this extremely difficult test. And, uh, you know, when, when he told him, uh, when this uh, friend who was sitting next to him told him that story, uh, Abdul Hamid Yusuf sort of woke up from his stupor and, um, and he started asking, you know, if, uh, if his wife will also be there and if his cousins will also be there and if his nephews will also be there. And it was just this, this incredible moment um, that, uh, that I think is etched in my mind forever. I insisted after we were done, um, we were told that we can't stay in the town for very long because there were reconnaissance drones that were flying over the town. But I insisted on going and visiting their, their graveyard and, and uh, paying my respects there. And, uh, and it was quite a sight to stand there and, and see 
uh, almost two dozen graves that had just been freshly, freshly dug and uh, and just sort of standing there and realizing just the, the scale of the horror that had befallen this this family and um, and being at a loss as to how he um, you know endured it and, and survived. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, when you tell this story, I can tell it means a lot to you. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that because you also, you tell it so quickly. And to me, it feels like you're like ripping a Band-Aid off. Like it's almost too traumatic to slow down and and tell at a slower pace. I'm, I'm sorry. It's it's difficult to to talk about it uh, with with the knowledge that uh, that he had children who are about my son's age now, um, hmm. and I I can't uh, I, I can't dwell on it for too long because um, I start you know getting in my head all these horrible images of what it would be like to lose a child, um, uh, you know, and particularly in the, in such a horrific uh, manner, um, you know, yeah. Do you know? What happened to that man? Um, uh, from what I uh, from what I uh, found out afterwards, he he was um, he was allowed to leave. Um, sorry, I think that's that's the cat making some noise. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, come on, that was a tough story. Come on, <laughs> let me like, in here. He comes in. He's like, do you need some cuddles? <laughs> exactly. He knows what's up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, from what I understood afterwards, uh, he was allowed to leave Syria and uh, settle in uh, in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, I think there was a picture of him with the Turkish president, um, you know, after his story was, uh, was publicized, um, he was given refuge in Turkey, but, um, but, but I don't know if he's, uh, if he's gone further afield, uh, by now. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that this man who went through this terrible trauma, you know, later he was in Turkey and, and with Erdogan because, uh, it really shows how there are these awful tragedies for individuals, and then maybe those individuals have something happen that seems good, but then those actors, <laughs> those larger country actors, are continuing the chaos for the vast majority of people. Yeah, you know, you mentioned at the start of the um, uh, of our conversation the uh, the case of uh, of the man and his uh, and his toddler uh, daughter who um, you know were playing this game uh, with uh, with bombardments, you know, so that she doesn't get scared of of the bombings. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was allowed into Turkey uh, with his daughter. Um, he got special dispensation to go in. But there's also a million other people sitting on, uh, you know, uh, by the border, freezing to death, who aren't, um, you know, hesitate to use the word so lucky. As Kareem sees it, the human lives in and around Idlib have been forgotten, both by the international community and the Syrian government. It's uh, look, it's, it's a piece of territory, right? And, and Assad, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, wants to end the war decisively. You know, he's um, he's militarily been able to reclaim all these parts of the country with Russian help and with Iranian help. But this is the largest piece of territory that they want to reclaim. They, they don't want to leave an area that could potentially be, you know, a refuge for rebels to rebuild and, um, uh, you know, and relaunch their insurgency against the regime. They want to end the war decisively because part of ending the war means that the international community begins to accept that Assad is staying, you know, begins to deal with him as, you know, the legitimate head of the Syrian state. That could eventually lead to reconstruction funds kind of coming in, the lifting of sanctions, 
you know, once uh, once all these Western countries and the European Union and so on uh, realize that the war is is decisively over, um, then he can begin to reclaim that status as a member of the international community and try to seek, um, you know, funds and and uh, and support to rebuild the country and to you know enrich his uh, his government. So this is about closing the book. Yeah, I mean, the reality of the situation right now is that the Syrian regime is actually really vulnerable because various parts of the country are, uh, you know, that are under his control are impoverished. You know, people are people don't have enough, uh, you know, to buy food. The currency has collapsed because of uh, the economic crisis in neighboring Lebanon. Uh, there is no access to hard currency. They're still under sanctions. Um, you know, they are unable to provide basic uh, staples like fuel and and, uh, and other types of food to uh, to ordinary people, and there are some you know uh, there are some rumblings of discontent in parts of the country that have been uh, pacified by his forces. Uh, so you know there there's all this unhappiness and all this destitution and poverty uh, that they have to contend with, and they're going to be unable to contend with it uh, in the long term uh, if there is no reconstruction aid and if there isn't uh, a lifting of sanctions and uh, uh, and sort of uh, a return to uh, to the normal uh, state of affairs with the international community. Well, so it sounds kind of desperate. I mean, we're we're talking on Friday, March 6th. A ceasefire was just announced in Idlib. How long do you think it will last? Well, it, no ceasefires in Idlib have held for very long because they preserve a status quo that is just untenable. You know, if you preserve the status quo right now, the regime wants to reclaim the country, the entire country, and they've made it very clear that they want to do so. They and Russia, you know, which is supposed to be a guarantor of these ceasefires, um, you know, jointly uh, violate these ceasefires and um, and bomb civilian areas and, and try to reclaim them militarily uh, from the rebels, uh, you know, whenever the situation suits them. So I don't think that a ceasefire is something that will hold in the long term because uh, it's it's in nobody's interest to maintain the status quo. Um, mm. Civilians don't feel safe in Idlib, uh, you know, at all times because the regime keeps violating the ceasefire. So they don't want to return back to their homes, and so they they're stuck, um, you know, in the um, uh, in this area near the Turkish border, um, and uh, and their situation becomes more desperate by the day. It's this desperation that resonates so deeply with Kareem, because he feels stuck too, watching the war play out from thousands of miles away in his new home, collecting atrocity after atrocity without any relief. You know, we, we had spent so many so many years in the international community talking about our responsibility to protect civilians, our responsibility to, to ensure that mass atrocities like, you know, in, in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, you know, even in the Holocaust, uh, you know, that, that we would not allow these mass atrocities to go unpunished um, or to, you know, or to proceed, you know, with, with all this impunity. Uh, and what I realized was that, you know, all this talk of never again and um, and of, uh, you know, respect for international law and for the international order were, um, you know, I, I won't use an expletive here, uh, but, you know, were meaningless. They were not worth the, the paper they were written, uh, they were written on. What's the expletive you would have used? Bullshit. <laughs> um, you know th- these these con- these ideas of the international community and um, and of the international rules based order were just meaningless. Yeah, I mean you've expressed this frustration as a journalist that you spent years telling these stories, these heartbreaking stories. In, in the years since that you've been away from the conflict, I wonder if you think about what would matter, what would cause some kind of action and and what you've thought about that. 
I, I don't know if, if anything will cause any kind of action. This, I, I suppose the, the sad truth um, is that I don't think there is a limit to what we will tolerate. We're, we're so, I think, inwardly focused now. It feels like concepts like human rights and, um, and fundamental rights and freedoms of, of ordinary human beings and, and their right to you know, even just live somewhere where they're not being bombed to death all the time. Um, uh, are outmoded, outdated concepts. You know, after nine years of, of war in Syria, it's become normal to bomb hospitals. It's become normal to besiege civilians. All of these are, you know, and even chemical weapons attacks, the, the, the regime got away with them uh, without any um, real punishment. And so, you know, this, this slow erosion of the international order and international law that's been happening for nine years is something that should really give us all pause, uh, you know, as we kind of contemplate um, the the far-reaching implications of the conflict and and of our choice and decision not to act uh, to to stop it from from continuing to unfold. Do you feel like you're okay now? What do you mean by okay? I don't know. You've seen a lot. <laughs> I mean. Do you feel safe? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel safe. Uh, I suppose <laughs> um, it's a tough question to answer. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, uh, if there is a right answer to that question. Um, I suppose I, I am okay because, um, uh, you know, I have a son now and, and he, uh, he occupies, uh, a lot of my time and, um, and spending time with him makes me incredibly happy. Um, I remember a conversation I had, uh, you know, during that, that trip to, uh, uh, to Idlib, um, to cover the chemical attack. And one of the fighters was with us joked that they should kidnap me and, uh, and ask for a ransom. Uh, and I said I was an Egyptian, so they weren't going to get any money out of it. Um, Holy shit. <laughs> Uh, no, it was it was uh, it was meant as a funny joke and everybody laughed and, and I did too. It's just that uh, that thinking back to it, um, it uh, it was it was true. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if um, I, I don't know what okay means really in in this context. I and and I don't know how that's going to affect you know who I am uh, in the long term. I think it's made me more cynical. Um, but but it's really hard for a lot of journalists to treat their mental health seriously because they think of, you know, the actual people that they're covering and uh, what they went through and what they continue to go through. And um, and it somehow feels a bit frivolous to think about, uh, you know, our own mental health and uh, and taking care of ourselves because the people we're writing about are going through so much more. Kareem, I'm really grateful to you for telling me these stories today. That's really kind of you to say. I'm, I'm grateful to you for listening and for asking me to talk to you. Hug that baby. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Kareem Shaheen is a journalist covering the Syrian war. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Daniel Hewitt. Tell us what you thought of this show by tweeting at us. You can find me at Mary's Desk. I'm Mary Harris. I will be back tomorrow with more What Next.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.